0: Word today, and God, as we look at Your truth, I pray that that we would find hope, and God, that we would see how Your grace is sufficient to guide us through all of our life. Lord, I pray that uh, even in the craziness and just the chaos of the world, that Lord, today, by looking at Your truth, that our minds would would truly have a different perspective. Lord, give us grace, and, and Lord, give us wisdom. I pray, Lord, you'd give me strength to share this. The way you want me to say it, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, here shortly we're going to start another series, but until then, I just wanted to share some different passages with you, and I think that... We can all agree that uh, there's so many things happening in, in, the, in the world. Jerry alluded to it uh, with the pandemic and with the, uh, the culture and with the political scene, so many different things. And, and the one takeaway that I have in my own experiences in talking to a lot of people, uh, not just here but anywhere, uh, a, a lot of it, there seems to be a hopelessness. That people are using or or, or inferring. And and I pray today that that we would not leave hopeless, but that we would leave with a different perspective of God's grace. The title of the message this morning is Authentic Enabling Grace. Authentic Enabling Grace. We're going to read this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And in verse 16, it says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all forsook me, deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we peer into Paul's final days, and that's exactly what's happening, many scholars, the majority of scholars, believe that 2 Timothy is his last writing and and that basically he is days before his death as he writes this letter. And as he goes before the tribunal, we have to get a little bit of a backdrop as to what's happening. Paul says, at my first defense, no one stood with me. What's happening? This appears to be a preliminary hearing before Nero and his people, before the courts, as he is called in because of his faith in Jesus Christ. This is at the end of his life. And what we look at when we notice this passage As we get a glimpse of God's grace working in real time in the Apostle Paul, we see so much of what he writes in terms of instruction, in terms of his own experience. But if if all the experiences that we could examine where we see God's grace on full display, this is one of the most powerful examples. This morning, we are going to look at four observations about the grace of God in the life of Paul. Four observations about the grace of God in the life of Paul. And the first one that we're going to focus on this morning is we're going to see a grace to forgive. A grace to forgive. I find this passage so intriguing because you really sense the emotion and the pain that Paul experienced as a human being, as someone that suffered for the cause of Christ. And as we look at this, I pray that we would see that the, the, the whole focus of Paul's life was what we looked at last time. Paul would say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to put that in layman's terms, that basically is the idea that, you know, you could go up to somebody right now and say, hey, what is it that drives you? What is it that you live for? What is it that you're passionate about? Paul would look at you and look at me and say, the essence of my life is Christ. And, and later, you know, in Philippians 3, when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed into his death. I mean, this was his, the driving force of his life. It was to know Christ, to walk with him. And, and what I pray we would learn from Paul is that we see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all of his life. So many times we think of Christianity as an ethic, the Judeo-Christian ethic. I go to church, I learn how I'm to live, I learn how I'm to function. But what we learn with Paul is that Paul fellowshiped with Jesus Christ. Christ was his life. And as Christ was his life, he experienced the living Christ working in him. And we see this in his ability to forgive others, that which was not natural to Paul, but that Christ provided for him. When we think of this phrase, at my first defense, no one came. What is he speaking of? I was looking at some different commentaries, and and I love what one quote of Alfred Plummer is. He says, Among all the Christians in Rome... There was not one who would stand at his side in court either to speak on his behalf or to advise him in the conduct of his case or to support him by a demonstration of sympathy. At my first defense, no one took my part. All deserted me. Yet if ever an accused man needed help, it was now. We are not told what charges had been laid against him, but we know from Tacitus Pliny, and other contemporary writers the kind of allegations which were being made against Christians at that time. This is fascinating. The early Christians were charged, going on here, they were accused of atheism because they eschewed idolatry and emperor worship. They were accused of cannibalism because they spoke of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of hatred of the human race. I tell you what goes around comes around, and history has a way of repeating itself, and mark it down, the very claim against the early church, they were haters of humanity, will come back on the scene in our lives today. May not be in our lifetime, but I think as we look at the world, as we think about the cancel culture, as we think about what the world defines as good, anyone that doesn't agree with or immediately canceled, don't be surprised that with the sexual ethic, with the Equality Act, that there will be a day in our lifetime when those who hold to a biblical Christian sexual ethic will be called bigots and literally will be accused of being haters of humanity. And I I say that only because Paul was living in a time of Nero, but that's not really the point of what I'm looking at here. I want you to see something here. The man who had given his life for the church, Now was in a situation at the end of his life where he needed people to come and speak on his behalf, and nobody came, and nobody spoke up. And what appears to be the case is the fear of these people dominated their response. How would you feel? I mean, uh, one common reality amongst people in ministry is that, you know, they share their stories. And, and, and every time ministers share their stories, if something like this gets brought up, they go, I mean, we don't have much to complain about, right? We don't have that much to say. I mean, we can go through bad weeks. We can go through bad letters. We can go through people speaking bad about us. We can go through all of that, but, but that, that's hard. We can have people reject us, but think with me here. Think about the emotions of the apostle Paul that at the end of his life, after three missionary journeys, after all that he had given to the church, he literally goes before the tribunal and nobody shows up on his behalf. This passage is is powerful. Look at it. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. And literally in the Greek there, this is the way it should read. At my first defense, no one came. No one came. No one was present. I, I was looking at this word and We're going to see it come up again later. But no one came. He was rejected. I I, I love this thought here because this word, you can trace it through the New Testament. Look at this word, the fourth one here. But when Christ appeared, same Greek word, you could literally translate this, but when Christ came as a high priest. It hit me studying this, aren't you thankful that Christ came (laughs) because the reality is is that because Christ came we have hope because as human beings we are no different than the associates of the apostle Paul. We're prone to fear. We're prone to discouragement. We're prone to all kinds of inconsistencies but Christ came and Christ was the sufficiency for Paul and if we look at his ministry Think about his giving, sacrificial life that he exhibited over and over. Look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 16. And when I arrive, the word is the same in the Greek, and when I come. And think how many examples there are within the book of Acts and within his epistles that demonstrate his sacrificial coming on their behalf. Yet again, The point being, at my first defense, no one came. And then he says a fascinating word, but they all deserted me. They deserted me. They they forsook me. They deserted me. They left me behind. Uh, We're going to see this morning that because of the grace of Jesus Christ, his grace was sufficient in Paul's weakness. And while people didn't come, the Lord Jesus came. And when people deserted him, the Lord Jesus did not. Isn't it comforting today? Have you given thought recently to the fact that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us? Because we have a high priest that was the God-man and understands us. Do you remember the passage that forecasted Jesus on the cross in Psalm chapter 22, where it says, my God? My God, why have you forsaken me? And aren't you thankful today that ultimately Jesus was willing to be forsaken, that we do not have to live forsaken by God? And that's exactly what we're looking at. And you may be thinking, what is this grace to forgive all about? Well, you have to get the context. Here's a man that was near the end of his life. People deserted him. They turned away from him. No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But then he makes this phrase here. He says, may it not be charged against them. This is a fascinating phrase, and we got to understand it because it's filled with language of the gospel. What would be the reaction that you would have if somebody you love sold you out? What would be the reaction of the world what are some of the common ways people say things? I asked the earlier servants. It's a smaller group, so they're less intimidated to talk out loud. Stan always talks when I ask questions. And, uh, and, and you know, he was pointing out, we were talking back and forth about, isn't this where people say karma? They got a lot of words to say about karma, right? And, and they say stuff about karma. They say, man, it's not going to be pretty when it comes back on you. Um, it ain't going to be pretty. Uh, I mean, people have a way of paying back others that sell them out. They have a way of remembering hurtful things. But I want you to see something here this morning. There's a different reality in the life of Paul because of the grace of Jesus Christ. I wonder as we go into the new year, how many of you are eaten up with relational bitterness? You see, if we got really personal and you were sharing your story over the last year, if you move past the pandemic and the political chaos, I wonder how many of you would say, you don't understand how one of my friends wasn't there when I needed them. Or maybe you would look and say, you know, you don't realize the, the, the grief that I've had with a parent or the problems I've had here. Or I want you to think about in what relational areas are you tempted to demonstrate bitterness right now? Because those always exist because we're people that deal with our flesh. But the grace of Christ empowered Paul not to be bitter. I'll never forget years ago, I was coaching a little team in Portland, and I took one of the kids home. And, and I've told you this story before, but I said, Adam, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? He said, oh, nothing. And I said, what about your grandmother? He said, well, mom and grandmother haven't spoken in 10 years. I was like, 10 years? I was like, what happened? What happened? He goes, oh, something happened 10 years ago that he's never talked since. What happened? In that situation, if Paul plays the same way that a lot of people in the world face it, he's done with these people. I put three missionary journeys into you and you do this to me? Write them off as frauds. Write them off as a bunch of wannabes. Write them off as a bunch of imposters. But what does he do? He says, may it not be charged against them. He uses a word, the word "charge" is fascinating. We got to understand this. It's the word that literally it's an accounting term, an accounting term where you account, you reckon, you number. I uh, I really don't like doing the score book at basketball games, and uh, Cully asked me to do it a bunch. I'm still mad at him for it, and. Uh, and 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 on the eighth grade basketball team, they have a wonderful lady that does the book, and she's really good at it. She's a sweet lady, and when she's not there, I, I somehow got roped into that deal, and uh, and I'm terrible at it. I just start watching, and uh, and and I like you know I'm watching, and I'm one time I yelled at the ref at the scores table. I was like, This is not appropriate. <laughs> but, uh, do not do that. And uh, but what do you do if you, if you played at the elementary level? You know how this goes. You're in a game, and you get a couple of fouls, and if you get two fouls in the first half, if usually if the coach knows what they're doing, they take you out. You don't play a person with two, two fouls in the first half. And so I remember I used to hack everybody when I played, and I'd get two fouls, and it was always a bad sign when I'd get a foul within 20 seconds of being in the game because I was like, oh, that means one more, and I'm done. And it would be inevitable. I would trip by accident and run into somebody. Second foul, I'm out of the game. I'd be so mad, but there would be that point in the game where you got four, you don't want to get that fifth, and you get the fifth, and you'd sort of just hide over there. You go to the foul, you just don't look at the bench, you don't look at the scores table, but then you notice they're not coming to shoot the free throw, and they're talking over at the scores table, and then they'll be like, hey, number 20, come here, You've got five, you're out of the game. And you're like, "How? that's not cool. Why do you got to keep up with everything I do wrong in the game? Why do you got to write down every little thing I do wrong? Every turnover? Every foul, that's exactly the way, unfortunately, a lot of people live their life. They're scorekeepers. If you wrong them, they'll be done with you. If you, and, and this is the way a lot of friendships work in communities like Scottsboro. Where people are friends for several years and something happens. And then you go, wait a minute, we used to have a friendship, but what happened? What happened? There was something that was recorded in the book of the record and things changed. But Paul uses this word, And he uses it in his writings in Romans chapter 4. And I pray this really thrills your heart. I want to read you all these verses here. Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And notice the word, the accounting word. And it was counted, that's the word, to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, same word, as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, then Paul says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now here it is. Paul says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see what's happening here? Paul was wounded greatly, and yet Paul had been transformed by the theology that God did not count Paul's sins against Paul. At that point, I really believe with all my heart what freed Paul to demonstrate the grace of God to his associates, to all these dear people, was the fact if God is not going to count my sins against me, then how can I count your sins against you? I love this because it sets you free. You know, today you may be here and you don't understand the gospel, and, and I pray that this, this message would be glorious to you because so many people, it's like going up, I told you about being in the Atlanta airport, and I saw that dear woman with a child going up the escalator the wrong way, and it was like horrifying because it was those are long, hearts-filled escalators, and everyone looked at her just like, please, ma'am, turn around and don't fight it she, she, I think, got embarrassed, and lots of people are watching her, and she just was like, I'm going to try to do it. And she kept trying to go up the wrong way of the escalator. That's exactly what life is like when we seek to merit the favor of God through religion. It wears us out. You can't keep up. But what happened to Paul? He recognized the only hope that he had to experience forgiveness of sins was through the righteousness of another, through a substitute. Only Christ could make him right with the Father. And Christ took his place. And believing in Christ, his account was reckoned as righteous. (laughs) That's amazing. You think about scorekeeping in the negative, but think about that bank account that has nothing in it. We've all been there. Uh, I don't know if you can relate, but when you bounce a check, I do it right, and I'll have like eight charges that are like two dollars and ninety six cents. And they're $25 for each charge. Have you been there and felt my pain before? And you need money transferred into your account. You've got a negative balance. You need a positive balance. Think about it. Paul's life of righteousness was in the wrong column. It was wickedness. It was under the judgment of God. But Christ Jesus took the sin of Paul and gave Paul his righteousness. That's the gospel. And it changed the way Paul looked. And the grace of God now enabled Paul not to be bitter, not to hold it against people, but to forgive. I pray that we would see God's grace is extravagant. It enables us to forgive. Last night I was um, going to bed and, and Will was sleeping next to me. And, and he goes to bed and he sleeps pretty quick, don't you, Will? And, and he can fall asleep in about eight seconds. It's amazing. And, and I was thinking, you know, isn't it like this? I've been bitter at people before, but have you ever thought of this? When you're bitter at individuals, while you sit up late at night being bitter, they sleep like a baby. It doesn't hurt anybody but you. But the grace of God gives you the freedom not to live this way the second observation of the grace of God here in Paul's life. It's not just a grace to forgive. It's a grace for comfort. You could literally change number two and put a grace to fellowship. And I think you'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. What he does next is, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. This is phenomenal. He says, may it not be charged against them. And then he moves into The passage of verse 17. I want you to look at a couple of passages that hit me as I was studying this. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Unbelievable. Jesus invites us to a fellowship whereby we abide in him and he in us. That's phenomenal. Listen to the words of John 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Uh, It's unbelievable language here. Think about it. You're talking about the God of the universe making his home, so to speak, with sinners. The God of the universe reaching down, the God of the universe abiding in us, we in him. Remember the ending of the Great Commission where Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You remember the passage in the Old Testament that often is read at times of death. And it's such an appropriate passage when we have loved ones die, because it reminds us that even in the dark valleys of death, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And notice as we look at verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He stood with me. I got excited looking at this because the word stood is very similar to the word in verse 16 when he says no one came. It's a synonym of the word stood here. And the, the literally the visual is this. At my first defense, no one came, but Christ stood. No one came, if you took the synonym to its furthest level, you could say, at my first offense, no one stood with me, but Christ stood with me. For the Christian, the grace of God enables them to recognize his comfort will always be present. His comfort is always there. He stood by Paul. He stands by us. He comforts, he's my rock, he's my high priest, he's my advocate, he's my friend, he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me. Listen to how Paul words it in 2 Corinthians, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. And then look what he says in verse 9. He says persecuted but not Forsaken. Now think about it. In light of what we just read in 2 Timothy 4, if you're reading 2 Timothy 4, you could say, wait a minute, Paul's wrong there. He was forsaken. How can he say persecuted but not forsaken? But what's he speaking of? Ultimately, he was never forsaken. He was never forsaken. The Lord Jesus Christ was always by his side. I think that what hit me in in looking at this was. There's grace everywhere in this passage. I I, I level it. I made it into four categories, but you could come up with more than four. There's, There's grace for fellowship here. Think about it. How do we experience comfort by God if we're not in fellowship with him? I loved it. It reminded me of 1 John when John wrote, we looked at a few weeks ago, where John says, we want you to have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and his Son, It's almost like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that I once was estranged, I once was alienated, I once was an enemy of God, but now I've been transferred into the family of God and I have God's promise and God's assurances that he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me? And we get to see a man who preached this message of the Christ life, who preached Christ in you, the hope of glory. And now as he's going to his death, what does he say to all of us in the church? but the Lord stood with me. He stood with me. He stands with Paul. He stands with us. He enables Paul not only to forgive, he enables Paul to be comforted, to walk with him. The third category here, the third observation about God's grace, not only grace to forgive, not only grace for comfort, but grace to fulfill his ministry. Grace to fulfill his ministry. Do you realize what we see in this passage is the reminder of the perseverance of the saints? There's a lot of, there's different ways people view salvation. Some people view salvation that that the, the whole matter of the deal is based on me, it's based on my choice and it's based on whether I choose to stay or go. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I can't find anything more troubling and more um, more that brings more doubt in my life than a view like that. It just gives me cringes. If, if my salvation is ultimately up to my ability to find God and my ability to hold on to God, I don't have any hope, you guys. I don't know if you feel better about your own condition, but the hope for the Christian is not that I found God, but that God reached out to me. The hope for the Christian is God's rescuing grace. It's God's pursuing grace. It's God's persevering hand. I would not, when, when when it finally hit me in my Christian life, that the only hope I had of enduring to the end was that Christ had a firm hold on me, I finally was able to rest and breathe because left up to me, I would be wayward. I would fall off the path. And Paul here speaks about God's grace and how it worked with him. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. You remember when Paul was called by God? You had Ananias and Acts. Nine, and you've got all of that scene there and you remember the promises that Paul was given that he was gonna suffer and he was gonna be a witness to the Gentiles. I mean, it's really amazing because you see all of this stuff coming all the way to the end. This was his final assignment. This is what God had intended for him to do this, go all the way to the end. And what happened? God was faithful. His grace not only gave him forgiving grace, it not only gave him comforting grace, it gave him a ministry fulfillment grace love this. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He uses the word strengthen here. He used it in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. And in chapter 2, he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It was a strengthening grace. It reminds me so much of what Paul said that Jerry read for us earlier. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. And this strength, I want you to ask yourself the question, how do we see God's strength apparent in him fulfilling his ministry? How do we see the strength of God apparent in his fulfilling his ministry? Well, the first part of this is his boldness. You remember what he said in 2 Timothy 1.8, if you've ever read the letter? He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He needed boldness. I tell you, I mentioned it earlier, but this excites me. How in the world? My prayer is, you know, is not, my prayer is that, is that the, uh, we would grow in maturity in Christ. And, and one of my prayers is that the students that we have in this church, the people young enough to think, wait a minute, he's talking to me right now. The, uh, the, they don't just know about God, they know God. They know him. There's a lot of people that know about God in Scottsboro. A lot of people. But, but, but this morning, do you know him? Are you experiencing the type of grace that enables you to deal with relational conflict and hurt? Are you experiencing a type of grace where you experience the comfort of God in the loneliest parts of your life? Are you experiencing and walking with God daily? This is a walk. This is a fellowship. This isn't a, uh, you know, sign me up. I profess this. I hold to these doctrines. I will come to church this often. No, this is a walk in a fellowship with the living God in Jesus Christ. And that's the prayer, because how are we going to be bold if what I said earlier comes to fruition, if people literally are ostracized and called bigots because they hold to a biblical understanding of life? Well, I got good news for you. The grace that enables people to forgive is the grace that enables people to be bold. Aren't you excited about that? You see, God not only enables his own to persevere, God gives grace for his own to be bold, to be bold in the face of, of fear, to be bold in the face of persecution, to be bold in the face of enemies. And, and Paul spoke about it in 2 Timothy 1.8. But not only was strength necessary to be bold, strength was necessary to endure. Paul says a lot about endurance throughout his letter to Timothy. To endure, to endure to the end. I want you to get the sense of what he's dealing with here. He, he's going before the council. He possibly Nero, all Nero's men, but but there's a guy, the guy I quoted earlier, Alfred Plummer. He does a good job here. He says, it is quite possible that this event, which the apostle of the Gentiles regards as the completing act of his own mission and ministry took place in the forum itself, but at any rate, it would be held in a court to which the public had access, and the Roman public at this time was the most representative in the world, in that representative city, and before that representative audience, he preached Christ, and through those who were present and heard Christ, and through those who were present and heard him, the fact would be made known throughout the civilized world that in the imperial city and before the imperial bench, the apostle of Christ had proclaimed the coming of his kingdom. And this is what he said to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, "'Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect.'" that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. In 2 Timothy 4, he speaks about this endurance He speaks about it all through his letters, and Paul endured. He needed strength to not only be bold, he needed strength to endure. And he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, notice that phrase, through me, I love it. You remember, it's like Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's like the message that Christ is preaching and proclaiming through Paul. He says, I might be fully proclaimed and all of the Gentiles might hear it. And then he says something fascinating. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And what in the world does that mean? Well, people speculate here. Some say, was it a physical lion? Was it the Romans throwing people to the lions literally? Most scholars believe that's not what's at stake here because Paul was a Roman citizen. Some people believe the lion might have been Nero. I think that's a very good view. I was delivered from the lion's mouth. It could have been one of the leaders. It could have been Satan. Some people look at the similarities of the language in 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18, and compare it to Psalm 22. And at the end of Psalm 22, he speaks about the lion. Some people think he's drawing from that. Not sure. But what I want you to see here is that God's grace enabled him. His strength enabled him to be bold, endure, to be delivered. He works in us. He works through us. I love the passage in 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, you may be thinking, how in the world can I be faithful as a Christian in the world today? I got good news. Paul serves as a great example to us. It's not in your ability. It's in the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ will enable you to fulfill your calling. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. How in the world are you going to be faithful to that? Through the grace of Jesus Christ. I love this because it sort of reminds me, as I think about next year and I think about the pandemic, I'll tell you, some people just love bad news. Did you hear that they just found this, you know? Did you hear this? And I'm like, please don't tell me. (laughs) It's horrible news. Did you hear this? No, I didn't hear this. The grace of Christ is sufficient no matter what you face. Uh, You know, if, if we're not careful, we're going to literally develop a defeatist mentality that literally says, let's just go home. It didn't work out the way we thought. Let's just stay at home and encourage one another on the prayer page. You know, living grace, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in real time every day of our life. Christ enabling me in the hardest parts of life. Enabling me as I'm facing martyrdom. Enabling me as I'm facing the temptation to be bitter. Enabling me when I'm lonely. Enabling me, I mean, on and on and on. What do you see here? You see hope. You see hope. You see grace. Grace that enables. Grace that fulfills. Grace that goes about what God's plans are. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Finally this morning, I want you to see the last observation about God's grace. Not only grace to forgive, grace for comfort, grace to fulfill his ministry, but grace to hope. Do you realize this morning, maybe I've been so encouraged. i told you this before, but we've watched people go through, and they're continuing to go through. They're not done with it. But we've watched people go through trauma of death. And I tell you, one of the ways that you see the genuineness of people's faith is how they respond when they're going through hurts and they're going through pain. I've been so blessed to see the testimony of these dear people in our church that have lost parents. And you know what? A lot of them, I've been so encouraged because as I've tried to reach out, they've expressed hopefulness in Christ. I want you to see something and be encouraged if you're hopeful this morning, it's only because of the grace of God. The grace of God enables hope. It's not just something that you say, oh, I'm going to be hopeful. World, worldly hope is iffy. It's like, I hope I win money. I hope my team wins. I hope this. The Christian's hope is built on historical truth. The Christian's hope is concrete, it's stable. And here we see another aspect of the authentic enabling grace of God. Not just grace to forgive, not just grace for comfort, not just grace to endure and fulfill the ministry, but grace to hope. It reminds me of Paul when he speaks in Romans chapter 15. And in Romans 15, he spoke about that hope. He speaks about the hope that that, that God gave, the hope that... Would abound to believers. That's the kind of hope that he experienced here. In Psalm 17, 8, it says, Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Romans again mentioned it, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And what's so exciting is if we look at 2 Timothy, we go through the letter, we see hope all the way through it. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he mentions that hope in, in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then he says, Hence, therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This morning, do you have hope? There's a promise of heavenly hope here. He speaks of heavenly hope, ultimate rescue, a grace to bring glory to God, to him be the glory forever and ever. Be encouraged by that today. This is the faith that you share with the Apostle Paul, a faith of like standing And because, believer, you are in Christ, you have the same promises and the same hope of his grace. I was listening to some music last night, and um, there was an artist back in the late 80s, early 90s that God used in my life, a guy by the name of Steve Camp. And and, and one of his songs that I always like to listen to is he is all you need. I want to read you the lyrics to one verse. When you're alone and your heart is torn, he is all you need. When you're confused and your soul is bruised, he is all you need. He's the rock of your soul. He's the anchor that holds through your desperate times. When your way is unsure, His love will endure, and peace you will find. This morning, we have hope. And today we've been reminded of grace to forgive, grace for comfort, grace to fulfill the ministry, grace to hope. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. I love this because as Paul is leaving this letter behind, I love it. I I, I got so excited seeing this. You know what his last words are to the people? If you got your Bible, go down to verse 22. Look what he says. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. That wasn't just words to use because that's the standard greeting. That was real, practical, authentic, enabling, real-time, grace. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your grace, God. And Lord, I pray that as a church that we would understand it more and more, but God, that that we would see that it's not just saving grace, Lord, it's living grace. It's grace in the future, it's future grace. Lord, it's about grace from beginning to end. Lord, that anything that we face, any command we come up to, that we feel inadequate to obey, I pray we'd be mindful of the grace that's in Jesus Christ, the grace that enables us to follow you and do your will. And Lord, I pray we would learn as the Apostle Paul that we appropriate this grace, and walk in this grace by faith. We trust in you. We dependently obey. Lord, teach us how to live mindful of your grace in every area of our life. So Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me.